Hi, this is William Roy. This is Dole. Hey, this is Melon Bread. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is Thomas DePoa, and you're listening to episode 17 of The Green Box. On this episode, we're going to talk about the skills occult and unnatural, and the sometimes fuzzy distinction between them. After that, we're going to fill the margins with our thoughts on what makes a good tone. We hope you enjoy. Alright, so there is a question that I see pretty often uh, over on the Night at the Opera Discord, and that question is, what is the difference between the occult skill and the unnatural skill? I've seen that come up too. I had a player once actually who came from World of Darkness who thought that occult and unnatural were the same thing. And then that that resulted in some hilarity. And like, okay, so if there is a difference, what is it, and why is it that they're, or, or why why are there two of what is essentially the same skill? I think they do get pretty confused sometimes. I think people want to use either would people want to use both of those for the same thing? They want to they want to like look at a monster or a clue and be like, what did this? What is the unnatural origin of this? How do I stop it? I roll a cult. Tell me everything about the monster. I want to know its weaknesses. Now, the issue being, you know, let's take a let's take an NPC or a, a let's take an agent who's got sixty in a cult and ten in a natural. Natural, you want to roll a cult because you have a much better chance of getting success there. But I think, to me, a cult like the three of us as podcast hosts have quite a bit of occult knowledge, but we have no unnatural knowledge. So we know that there's this spooky mythos that somebody made up about Cthulhu and this weird racist guy wrote about a bunch of stuff. Uh, we know that there's, you know, the grades of these weird alien things. And all. so we have all this knowledge that's like from games we've played and from media we've consumed. The difference being if one of us had met an alien or actually fought a deep one, then we would have unnatural because we would have knowledge that this is real. But I think it's important to note that even though I've never fought a, uh, I've never fought a deep one, if one showed up, my knowledge of deep ones from my gaming world would be useful compared to someone who'd never even heard about a deep one. So uh, a cult has some bearing. Wait, 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 wait. So you mean to tell me in all your time as a puddle pirate, you never saw people swimming way out in the middle of the ocean where they shouldn't be swimming? You never saw little like human heads bobbing like turtles out in the deep water? I mean, I can't divulge that kind of information. I feel fucking lied to, man. But I mean, you get what I'm saying. Like, you know, the uh, to me, a cult is like, your just general human level knowledge of spooky things and knowledge of, you know, you've read a bunch of books, you've read a bunch of spooky stuff and a, a natural is, you know, the spooky stuff you've dealt with the stuff. Well, and just looking at the mechanics of how the skills work, that should be readily apparent because a natural is the one that reduces your maximum sanity and the one that you can't train directly except by exposing yourself to horrible cosmic things from between the stars. Whereas a cult is just a regular old skill. It doesn't sap your max sanity. You can train it up during your downtime. That should give a clue as to the fields that each of them covers. One being sanity-shattering truths, and the other being hints at the way things actually work, seen from behind the veil of human perception. I think it's important to note that what, what I see happen a lot of times is 
okay, you've, you've, a character has seen this unnatural threat, or they know that they've got to stop, say, a Shaga. They figured out that's what the bad the bad thing is. They got to stop it. So they want some sort of guidance. You know, will an elder sign work? Will salt work? Will hot water work? Can, do we have to use malk? Whatever. I feel like kind of as written, you would have to roll unnatural. You'd have to know this stuff would work. But I think that's silly because, one, most people have a very low un- unnatural. So I think if you love someone world a cult, you, you probably don't want to give them their elder sign ritual. But they might know that there is... A, a warding sigil that some that is talked about in certain texts. They might know that um, some uh, physical warding can be done by sprinkling some sort of powder on the ground. You know, whatever. Give the players something to go to go on, or else it's a give the players something to go on. There, there was a scenario that uh, Tom ran the other day that was based off of uh, a comic book series called Injection, and. Um, he allowed us to use a cult to identify like a possible like ward against possession by some of these spirits. And the ward was just like, turn your clothes inside out. And so like all, all of our characters, like take our jackets and our pants off and turn them inside out. Like we're some sort of a 1990s fashion it was trend. It was the crisscross ward. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was a cool use because it, it actually did work. So, but that's, uh, that's in like direct defiance of like what, the skill well okay it's not in direct defiance of what the skill says because uh i'm gonna be that guy and give you guys the the book definition here didn't will give that, that to agent's us. handbook not directly i'm about to quote it verbatim um a cult can never tell an agent what's genuinely unnatural and what's just superstition or mythology that's the province of the unnatural skill so i i would say probably uh a cult is useful for handlers to mess with their players which is great jake right now vampire shows up on your front door how do you kill it um well i don't have any silver bullets so i guess i'd snap a chair leg off and stab it through the heart with wood uh excuse you vampire shows up my front door fine i just don't invite him in oh yeah you're right um now neither of you guys in real life have, have any you've never you don't have any actual knowledge of how to kill vampires you've never killed a vampire you've never uh read any tomes on it right i mean that's what you think so that's a perfect example that's just occult knowledge that you would use in a real world situation the occult skill i guess would cover stuff in like mythologies and and religious traditions and folk tales and that sort of thing you know stories about things that may or may not have been the unnatural uh told from the perspective of you know human traditions of storytelling and, and history and, and lore keeping so the details have been distorted over time. They may they may be helpful. They may be nothing but you know, they may they they may not be accurate at all. For instance, uh, I played in a game once where any um, where what was it? What are they called? What are the Snake Men actually called? Anybody remember? Yeah, ser- ser- Serpent Men. So I played a game once where the antagonists were Serpent Men, and they were they were this was uh, this was actually a melon scenario: snakes on a plane. Uh, wherein the serpent men are using the blood of some of the passengers to power the illusion rituals that are whatever. It's a whole thing. Uh, but one of the agents has a really high cult skill, and he sees that some of these guys have, like, they're they're showing indi- um, symptoms of, like, blood loss, and they've got, like, little marks in the neck. So he goes, oh, I rolled a cult. What's going on? And he aces it. And the handler goes, vampires. There's vampires on board. And it, it, was, it was great. And that was the assumption that we proceeded on from there on. I think you've hit on a good point there that, 
if, if an agent rolls, if an agent wants to get the same information, aka, what is this? How do I stop it? And they roll a natural and they hit it, they should get the, the truth. If they roll a cult and hit it, they're going to get what the general, I, what generally, you know, you, you survey 100 people in a mall somewhere. What do they think the truth is? That's what you get out of, out of unnatural, or out, sorry, out of, out of a cult. Yeah, it's going to be a difficult thing for the handler to adjudicate. But yeah, the occult skill should be what if it should be what what's what somebody would think like an average person off the street would think if they were explained the details of whatever the situation is and asked, what is this, you know, phenomenon or supernatural being? However, um, I would not want to rule out the possibility of the occult skill also covering knowledge of um mythologies and cryptozoologies and, and religious traditions and, and oral histories and that sort of thing that may genuinely encompass details of the unnatural. I wouldn't want to rule that out. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So it's kind of hit or miss? Uh, oh, my God. Huh? No, I didn't even intend. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't even intend for that. I'm keeping <laughs> that guess, in. I guess they never miss, huh? I'm not cutting that. Um. Anyways, uh, it's a, a question then. Um. Is a cult a skill that you would recommend rolling in secret? Like, there's a couple of skills I think that you like need to roll in secret, like alertness or uh, is a cult one of those? Well, okay, that'd be because like you know, uh, hey everybody, I need you to roll alertness, and then like they all fail, and then everyone's like, oh, there was something there that we missed, but like their characters don't know, but the players do, so that's why you roll that in secret. Does the same thing apply I with the cult? Usually, don't roll skills in secret but in a situation where i would call for a secret skill roll i don't know if i would roll a cult in secret because you either know something or you don't and you if you don't know well, it then what if, you the, know what if there are known know unknowns and then unknown unknowns and you're about you're about to invade iraq that's exactly it that's it we found our episode title <laughs> yeah uh, well, I mean, you know what they say, uh, proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. A proof is a proof, and uh, when you have a good proof, it's because it's proven. Rarely do players come across this kind of scenario where they stumble upon, in an alley, a blood-drained a blood corpse with two bite holes in the neck and go, well, I know this is a vampire, but I want to roll a cult anyway. I want to roll a cult anyway. So generally what they do is they come across something weird. This corpse has been drained of blood. All the body parts have been rearranged, and it's, it's, it's pink-tinted. I have no idea what this is. I need help. Like, I'm looking for a clue because I'm stumped. So usually if they're, if they're asking to roll a cult, they're looking for a clue. So if, you, if you're just going to stonewall them and be like, no, you know nothing. I mean, your game's you're going to have a bad time if you don't have some other clue given. In the event where they're looking for a clue, uh, I wouldn't call for a skill roll at all. But a cult would be one of the lifelines I'd throw them if, if my players were really stuck. Yeah, exactly. I'd say, all right, who's got the highest occult? What is it? And then I'd try and calibrate a clue based on that. Jake, I like that because like I don't even think it's possible to get above like thirty in unnatural without being a, a destroyed character. Oh yeah. I, I sh- so for the listeners, I, I shared a link of uh, the opint from the handler's guide about the unnatural skill, and it has it it dares to have a table of uh, what your skill rating represents. And there's one. I mean, the fact that it the fact that it goes above thirty is just astonishing to me because. That's usually right about the time the agents hit that death spiral. Somebody who has more than 30 unnatural is well on the way to becoming a sorcerer. Yeah, pretty much. So 1% to 9% unnatural. Certain knowledge that non-human things and forces exist and threaten humanity. So, Kevin, 
I would expect most Delta Green agents to fall within that, and then uh, a like maybe like eighty percent of Delta Green agents are in that first category, and then maybe twenty percent are in the next category. The up. specialist, yeah. And then like, and then somebody like Alphonse would have maybe twenty to thirty percent. Well, in the book, I think the director has above thirty. Yeah, and a couple of the other like big names from the thing. Yeah, like I said, somebody like Alphonse. What do you, what do you mean? They're different people. What are you talking about? What? <laughs> it's also worth noting that this is in the handler's guide, so you might be creating an all-powerful sorcerer or entity or, or thing from beyond time, which might have 99 unnatural. It's giving you a benchmark for that. A deep understanding of pre-human history, locations, and secrets. Oh, oh, so look at the bottom of this section right here. The occult is human fiction that obscures the horrors of the genuinely unnatural. Understanding the traditions and beliefs of occultists and conspiracy theorists is often useful, but it never reveals the truths of the hungry cosmos. See, I'd, I'd reject that. I wouldn't say it never reveals it. It, it. it hints at it. I mean, go back to the vampire example. You may not know. I mean, one, you might stab that vampire with a table leg and he might laugh it off and you're dead. But if you throw garlic in his face and he like runs away, then it's not like you didn't know that. So, yeah, I also reject that premise. Oh, that reminds me of, uh, I don't know if this is an actual Ted Bundy quote or not, but uh, Ted Bundy said that he ate somebody that uh, had tattoos on and it tasted like shit. So if you want to avoid being eaten by a vampire, uh, eat lots of garlic in your food always. And if you want to avoid being eaten by a cannibal, just ink yourself all over. So I think another thing to look out for is if, you, if you're writing a scenario and you have designed it such a way that the, the best win state or the, 90, you know, the, the better than average win state is that the players find this ritual and then learn it or utilize the unnatural to determine something. If we're going to do that, then any amount of unnatural should get them that clue. They shouldn't have to roll for it or else you're just gating them out of your ending. <clears throat> well, I would call for the roll anyway. But it would be like, uh, I don't know, maybe on a, maybe on a fail you'd increase it and learn the clue, whereas on a success you learn like a more useful or more detailed clue. There's rules for adjudicating this in the handler's guide. It gives you some tips as well. Um, it never it says don't let players just be like I roll a natural. It wants you to ask them specifically what they'd like to know about the threat says uh, an agent might say, I want to roll a natural to know if the thing can fly. And then they roll the unnatural skill. And then uh, this is the part where the handler gaslights them based on the results of the dice roll. For this skill, especially for the unnatural skill, you should steer them to asking a specific question because of the way that the skill resolves. It resolves differently than the other skills. It's not like any other skill. You can't roll a natural, fail it, check it, and then it increases by one at the end of the session. For sure. There's very specific ways that you increase the skill. Um, because one of them is by failing in a natural yeah, role. Yeah, one of them is by failing in a natural role, but it's it's different though because if you fumble a natural in a natural role, it's it's pretty bad. I really like the suggestion for a fumble, which is that you don't get the answer to the question you were asking; you get a different answer to a different question, and the answer to that question is, to- is <laughs> horrifying. Scares the shit out of you, and you lose the sand when you fumble. That tends to be like I. That's another thing I like. I try to apply to other skills other than a natural is that. You know, if because if, if we're rolling openly, then they know what a fumble is. So the fumble isn't just, oh no, you have bad information. The fumble is you have different information that's not at all helpful. So okay, so a lot of skills tend to be like one and done. So you know, you try to resolve this one thing, you roll the skill, and then it's over with. Would you guys allow multiple unnatural rolls for specific questions? Like, can this creature fly? 
what's it weak to you know uh how do i trap it would you allow that since there is a disincentive built into rolling and failing a natural i would say yeah you can roll a natural as long as you want <laughs> that's true yeah we can just sit here and you can do that until you run out of sanity to circle circle back to circle back for a second i think back to the scenario of jake being accosted by a vampire i think if a way I would kind of circumvent players utilizing their occult role too many times is if if they roll occult and they get some basic like mythology and they put it into practice and it works, that would be a sand roll. Be like you you read about vampires, but you just killed one in your room. It's de- decomposing in front of you. That shit is real roll sand. Do vampires decompose? Hold on, it, let me roll it a natural. Depends on what mythos you're I, in. I need I need to roll I need to roll a natural. They might. It depends. It might just turn into dust, which I guess dust is the end state of decomposition. Hang on, I think there's one more of these sections. And if you combine the dust with glow dust, you can make a poison. Thanks, Skyrim. Nice. So we've learned a couple of things in the segment about uh, the difference between a cult and a natural, why someone might be rolling it, and uh, how to adjudicate those rolls and how to move forward. But the true question is, after this discussion, Jake, what are you going to do if a vampire knocks on your door? Going uh, to... Let the right one in. Will, what are you gonna do? Um, I'm gonna wait till sun up. So, so wait a minute. Are vampires? They're, they're technically the the sunlight gets them right. This is the same thing about werewolves. The sunlight is just reflected, or moonlight is just reflected sunlight. Yeah, weird news at ele- news at fucking eleven thirty here. Uh, weird mythological creatures don't follow actual real world physics. Roll sand. Ah, you got me. <laughs> So there is a part of a part of the Delta Green rules and the the Mythos universe that I've never once been able to use in a game, uh, which generally is because every time I look at it, it just seems uh, like I'm never going to be able to work it in. But I've never been able to or had a desire to use tomes. Every time I've seen like a tome in a scenario, it's always had, hey, you have to take four months out of your time to read this and make a bunch of skill rolls and do a bunch of weird stuff. In the meanwhile, like the, the monster you need the tome for is in the next room killing your partner. So this, I'd never found a good reason to use them. But is it just me? Am I the only one not using tomes? So maybe it's a good opportunity to define a tome. Uh, would a tome be any kind of document that has weird supernatural knowledge on it or does it have to be a 12th century illuminated manuscript written in old icelandic or something i think it's anything you can study to gain knowledge well not not to be the, the canon nazi here but uh call them according Karatekia to both yeah in the canon according to according to both uh delta green and call of cthulhu rules the definition is basically the musty old 12th century bound in human skin that's not true about Delta Green. In Delta Green, the Handler's Guide, there are several tomes that are given as PDFs or as, like, just type, typed out pages. Right, yeah, it, it mentions that, like, scanned copies of ancient tomes. No, but I mean, like, one of the tomes is, is a surveillance footage, and one of the tomes is a, like, a report from Majestic 12 that's distributed as a PDF or just as a bunch of, like, a binder full of shit. But I think that this... What Heron was, and both, and you are both trying to get at here is that a tome doesn't just have to be, like like you said, an illuminated manuscript. It can be any kind of source material that contains the bad information. Is it really bad, though? Well, no, because it 
contains the true workings of the universe, and as you as we know, your unnatural is like your score in this game, and you wanted to get it as high as possible. Well, it's primarily a way of exchanging sanity for unnatural, so it depends on how much you value one or the other. See, I always looked at it as ways to find out the the Sky Devil's weakness, or the secret code phrase that kills the robot man, um, rather than uh, just the unnatural boost. And that is certainly what I think is the optimal use of them, that the tome is, uh, it has a vital clue for the scenario that you're just automatically losing sanity and getting something valuable out of it. That's like a part of the way they were originally intended to, because I was looking at an older document, um, and we'll link it here. It's an annotated uh, copy of The Unspeakable Love, number one. John Scott Tynes uh, says, determining spells for your unique books now is essential and ensures consistency within your campaign, and allows you to plant spells that you think the investigators may need later on. So, yeah, uh, like it was originally intended to be like the deus ex machina, or like the solution to, or a solution to the problems you're presenting your players with. At least for me, so the biggest thing that sets sets me back on using tomes is that they always seem to have a ridiculous study time. In some cases, even like a two-day study time. I never have a break in a scenario long enough for two days. Like, there's always constant action, like, you know, you're always ramping up the tensions of the agents have to get to the next threat or the next thing. I don't really have these built-in three-week study periods. Um, and I, I no think, scenarios seem to, like, from the from the creators either. So I feel like I'm not off on that. I think it's probably better rather than strictly adhering to a study time is to break them into two categories. Can you feasibly learn something important from this tome within the time frame of the operation, even if you just hand wave it and say, you spend this scene reading the tome and losing your mind? Or are you going to have to save it for a home pursuit to study that tome? The book, Delta Green Handler's Guide, gives rules for skimming tomes, but they're completely useless because if you've written a scenario that requires you get to get like the magic spell out of them or whatever, then I'm pretty sure you can't do that by skimming. I'm going to look in the Handler's Guide because... I, I think you can, but it's a there's a modifier on the roll, so it's harder. And I think it also leads you back to a, a sidebar about flawed spells where it's harder or there's some additional negative consequence for performing the spell. What always struck me odd about that is I understand they're trying to emulate this really intense scholarly study of a difficult work, but I mean, I'm not a nuclear physicist, but I think I could take a book on nuclear, phys- nuclear physics and read it over the course of two full days and know how to fuck up a nuclear reactor if I needed to. I, mean, I might not grasp all the concepts, but I think I could get enough to kill the monster. And it feels like there's no mechanic for that, unless you just write one in yourself. But again, looking at all the tomes I've seen in other works, I don't think they're designed to be used that way. So that's where I kind of throw them away because they don't seem to fit my needs. Well, to throw back to what I was saying before, do you think you could get that from a a nuclear physics textbook written in Icelandic? Well, that's why I think that all tomes should be, if you expect the players to use them, written in a language they can understand. And they oh, should that's be very short. True. Because I am of the opinion that if a player wants to trade their sanity and the other things that their character needs to survive in order to gain more mythos knowledge, there should not be a skill check standing in the way. There should not be hours and hours or days of, of any of that stuff. If the player wants to receive knowledge that destroys them, they should be allowed to do so. And there should not be barriers placed in front of them, because the only barrier that you're supposed to have is your brain telling you this is a bad idea. It's not mechanically interesting to me to have it 
be a skill check or to have it be a skill that the players don't have that stops them from doing it. The thing that stops them from doing it should be their conscience, and if they don't have a conscience, then they need to then they're going to pay the price when they get the knowledge. I mean, I'll use a a, a more mythosy example. If I find a tome on the giant slugs that are eating the eating the countryside, and the tome is written and it talks about the history of the slugs and how they were created, and it has pictures of the slugs, and it talks about their physio- physiology and how they how they gestate and how they eat people. All I care about is a one line that says, "Hey, slugs hate salt." That, that's all I need out of that tome. Give me, give me a way to get, get just that, and I can get that with a skim. But it shouldn't be any harder. And honestly, it should be easier to get the skim because all you're doing is reading through, looking for like, all right, weaknesses, weaknesses. Weak, that salt. Let's try salt. Skimming it, yeah, you're right. It should be pretty easy to skim and find. You know, the amigo hate milk or whatever. That is, that is. I got the book in front of me open right now, and it, that is actually what it says here: is that you can. Um, Skim the tome in a matter of hours or days, which I still think is too long. But it may prov- it may provide a useful clue or insight. Is there like a role attached to that? Or? Um, it says that it provides a u- it may provide a useful clue or insight, much as using the unnatural skill might. Ah, okay. If the handler wishes, skim- skimming a tome could allow enough understanding of a ritual to attempt it at severe disadvantage. See flawed rituals. Uh, but it's never enough to learn a ritual, so it can be attempted later, which to me doesn't matter because I think that if you are writing a scenario that can only be com- accomplished by casting a ritual, then you should rewrite your scenario. Kevin, you mentioned that like you just can't find a way to include tomes in the things that you write. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I like the idea because it, it gives... A- we talked about this a lot on the show, but it gives people who are not the shooty guy something cool to do. You know, while the shooty guy is halting off the giant slug, the, sci- the, you know, the anthropologist is frantic looking through it, and he's like, ah, shoot it in the left spot. You know, that's a really cool cinematic moment that gives him some way to be useful without just being a gun-toting maniac. But uh, at this point, if it's going to take two weeks to study it, then you're better off being a gun-toting maniac. That has to do with the nature of the types of scenarios. Uh, I know I tend to write, you tend to write. You know, like the the frantic, oh shit, here's a problem, we gotta solve the problem, oh god, oh god. As opposed to like slow burn type investigations, you know? Well, so this is an example from one of the Delta Green published scenarios, and it's it's Tomy. In uh, Future Perfect Part 1, so minor spoilers, you can find out some really cool stuff if you like stop the entire investigation, go to Miskatonic University and look some stuff up. But at that point in the scenario, you've got this like radioactive basement and this weird leaking pipe. Like you're not going to be like, well, let's pack up here and go all the way across the country. It's just, I, I can't imagine any percent of players to, doing to that. To add to that, go across the country to find something that you would only know existed if you were metagaming. Yeah, so it feels like, I mean, again, that's that's that's, that's tome-esque. It has the same kind of mechanical advantage of a tome, but what player would ever make that just make that choice? I don't see it ever happening. A player who was metagaming, <laughs> like that's the way that the way to the way to know how to translate the runes is to know out of character that magic runes are found in the Necronomicon or in the Federal Papers. Yeah, exactly. So that's. I mean, uh, uh, can we think of any other examples from published scenarios that use tomes that we can kind of uh, look at through a lens of our criticisms? Uh, the one that I keep thinking of when I talk about Deus Ex Machinas is the one in Music from a Darkened Room. And doesn't someone else get to do that? Isn't it not even the, p- the player characters? The player characters get to read the tome. The tome in that... In that and I, I, I rip on this scenario a lot. I think the tome in there is an extraordinarily bad use of tomes because everything else in that scenario is a waste of time until the NPC finds the tome in the table and then they give it to you and then the tome literally just solves the entire mystery right there in front of you. It tells you exactly what's happening. It tells you exactly what to do about it. 
Do you recall how well, long it takes to learn the the tome in that case or read it? Do you remember? I recall that? that it took long enough in our scenario. Basically, the guy had to sit in the hotel and just read it while everyone else went out and had adventures. So, if we look at tomes, the, the way that they're supposed to be used, it seems like it's to give players uh, a, a clue or, or an edge. So, like, I would just rather do that by letting the anthropologist notice something cool about the thing, or have the physicist get a cool role that notice something about the thing. I'd rather give them that knowledge away that is like investigatory rather than just reading a tome. I'm still just not convinced as to the value of tomes, aside from the creep factor. I feel like, as somebody who came to Delta Green explicitly for the Lovecraftian angle, I'm just disappointed that this is going to sound bad, but like the more convenient and the more like easy you make it to use a tome, the further you get from the Lovecraftian angle of things. So I feel like I wish there was a little bit more interactivity a little bit more to dig into with tome you see this come up a lot when people talk about how movie adaptations change a lot from the books and how terrible they are like reading a really cool novel about a guy rifling through papers and finding this unholy realization can be interesting but doing it as a player is super boring and unengaging the one good thing about the scenario artifact zero is that you get this big pile of documents and you have to rifle through them and put together a horrifying truth and it works really well and the rest of the scenario sucks but that part is really awesome and i think does what heron's talking about quite well yeah so if there's a super awesome handout if you give somebody an actual tome in Icelandic and let them figure it out that'd be really fucking awesome do we want to talk about the call mechanics then because they are more interactive than the delta green ones um so essentially they have sort of like a, a believe it or not type system so if you read an unnatural tome, you can kind of regard it as like a book of fiction. However, like on your character sheet, you still add to your unnatural or Cthulhu mythos skill, subtract from the maximum sand. Um, so like you get the knowledge of it without like the, the damage to your sanity score. However, when you're faced with, you know, oh my God, this is an elder thing. I read about this. If, if the elder thing's real, what else is real? You know, then you lose... You know, the initial sand... I'm sorry, back it up for a second. Let's... You read a book and the book mentions other things. You choose to regard it as a book of fiction. You get the unnatural score, the Cthulhu Mythos skill score. Subtract maximum sand. When you're confronted with an elder thing and you lose sanity for the first time from seeing it, you then lose the total amount of uh, Cthulhu Mythos slash unnatural skill that you gained all at once. Because it's confirming that this shit's real and all that shit's real. Oh, God, it's terrible. You lose the unnatural skill or you lose more sanity? Whatever you gained in the unnatural skill rating is the amount of sand that you lose. Okay, yeah, okay. So yeah, I got it. It really, it can hit you, like, really hard if you read, like, a like a heavy enough book. And, it, I mean, just, like, it, that, that's enough to push you over the edge uh, for, like, a temp insanity or a, a breaking point. Why would you gain more unnatural points if you think it's a work of fiction and just occult BS? You gain the things because, you know, it's like you have that locked in your head. You know, it's the same as reading about, you know, these Kevin's example from earlier. You read about a book about nuclear physics. You you have that knowledge in your head. So that's why the skill goes up. I mean, I just think choosing not to believe the tome is pretty boring. If you just think it's occult BS and fiction, I don't know why you would mechanically represent you gaining knowledge from it so 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 i right, think about it this way we all know a bunch about a bunch of knowledge about dungeons and dragons creatures so our our dungeons and dragons skill is pretty high if we were confronted with a beholder tomorrow it would fuck us up pretty hard but we still know about them they're just not they're not real 
So you'd know about these elder things. They're a work of fiction. That's cool. You know all about them. And then when you see one, it really screws you up. Yeah, it's, like, if uh, the point is I can lose some sand now or I can lose a bunch of sand later. That's a meta choice. So you, you, hopefully your players aren't going to metagame everything. And if they're a really rational person who doesn't believe in this garbage nonsense, and, you know, they would not believe the tome. And if they are a believer, they would. So what would the character think? But you can you can complain about metagaming and so on and people making optimal mechanical choices but my feeling has always been that the thematic content of the setting should be reinforced by the mechanics as much as possible so rather than saying that the player who does this thing is metagaming we should think instead how can we design mechanics that give players options that aren't just optimal that give players a more interesting choice between just here's the role-playing thing and here's the mechanically optimal thing i mean it's it's like role-playing a skeptic yeah Sure, but I think the main difference in taking it now versus taking it later is that when you take it later, you're more likely to get a temp because you are getting not only the bad knowledge from the book, but also the sand loss from seeing the creature itself. That's probably the the part that I like because it, it is it is a legitimate risk reward because uh, the one the one thing I can see is it might be a gamble on the fact that you'll never actually encounter the thing in question. So you're just getting essentially free knowledge, free points in the Cthulhu Mythos or a natural skill, without actually having to pay the sand cost. Oh, and addendum, if the tome that you read contains a ritual or a spell, you learn the spell, but you can't cast it, because the casting calls for belief, and at any point in time you can choose to believe, but then that's when you run the risk of, of taking that shotgun blast of the, of the loss. I do think that... I don't. I, I know that I don't like the rules in at least in seventh edition. When I remember what I remember from it for learning spells from tomes, because it just seemed like a constant meat grinder of just making the same intelligence test over and over at increasing difficulties. First to read the book and then to get the spells and then to cast the spells. Um, Heron, you said that you had a, a way out of this for us. So it wouldn't be for every tome. This would be like the thing about the existing rules is that they are they are fast and they do put player utility first in that it shows you how quickly you can read this thing and whether you want to waste the time on that. But I do like uh, in The Call of Cthulhu the way it's portrayed of him rifling through all these documents and letters and newspaper clippings. So I was trying to think of something that could replicate that. And I was wondering if if you're using a single important tome for a campaign or like an archive of tomes for a campaign, it might be be interesting to try and structure that like its own little mystery using the three clue rule where the tome has some hidden meaning you're trying to get to and every time you find a clue towards it and you read a new portion of it you get uh the sand loss and unnatural and maybe lose maybe learn a spell like it was its own self-contained tome i do like that because if you look in the the handler's guide there are some tomes that just have so many spells in them that if you're just going rules as written, okay, I read the whole tome, well, I make a sand test for each spell, and then if I, any for any failed test, I get, I lose the sanity and I gain the, the magic or whatever. And so I, I go through my marathon reading session and just lose 80 sanity and gain all the spells in the game if I read the Necronomicon. So I think your way is better and probably the way it's intended to be run. With the way tomes are written, I wouldn't let you read all of them and learn all the spells at once, I would say you can learn one spell every time you study the unnatural. Uh, but the primary thing is you break the tome into chunks, and you still get similar sand loss and unnatural rewards as if you were reading a self-contained tome. 
There's something in the Handler's Guide that works sort of like this, the Nicotic Manuscripts, where it explicitly says there's no single, like, canon list of documents in that collection, and so every edition uh, adds some on and loses others, which means you can read it three times and get the same rewards each time. The thing that I was thinking about earlier, someone said that this concept of the tome with the knowledge inside is an important way to make the anthropologist or archaeologist more fun and useful. It's I'm one way to give them something to do, yeah. I'm wondering now what we might do is, and I've, I've tried to do this a couple times with, uh, with rituals, is to have a tome that, rather than locking the players out if they don't have the right skill, like you need to read, you know, ancient Latin or Greek or Chinese or what have you, rather than that, the use of the anthropologist is to determine which parts of the book are real and which parts are suspicious. So I had one ritual in um, a scenario called Oil and Vinegar that's given them given to the players by a wizard who doesn't have their best interests at heart. And the document that he gives them says, you should conduct this ritual with this number of people. And it's deliberately calculated to fuck them up because of the way the power spending works. And the anthropologist or the occultist or whatever who reads it is going to say, hey, wait, this isn't, you know, consistent with this esoteric tradition or whatever, or, you know, the way he's describing that, that sounds like it'd be a bad idea. So you get the thing, but you may not be making the optimal choice based on the information if you don't have the right skill. Yeah, I really like that idea. I don't necessarily dislike the way languages are handled, but I definitely think expanding uh, the ways you can interact with them and look at them is really helpful. Like another one might be if you're using computer scientists, maybe the maybe the tome is written in code or segments of it are written in code. So you need a decent SIGINT to understand what it's saying. Similarly, a, phys- a physics based tome, you could use your uh, science physics to or mathematics or whatever to figure out which parts of it were just going to fucking kill you when you cast them. And also, I want to say that the. The t- traditional tome that has three, a three-week study time probably works in a longer campaign where you you know see a, a bad thing, and over the course of five or six in-game sessions, you're going to fight it. In between those sessions, you have time to do this research. I just never run games like that, so that's where I find tomes to be lacking. But we have you guys are giving me some interesting ideas for sure. So my I've said that my philosophy, make it fast to read, make it in a language they can understand. The only barrier is their conscience and their sanity. I think that's how I would do it if the tome was meant to be used in play. But the other way that I use these books is as basically like a treasure that the players can acquire from the scene of the action or from, you know, the bad guy or from the library or whatever. It's an item that they can take into their home scene and use to get spells and knowledge and other stuff. So it's it's basically, it's not necessarily a reward because it's something that hurts them. But at the same time, it is designed to, not something that's necessary to complete the scenario, but something that adds flavor to the game world and makes the character a little different and a little unique. Let me roll up my loot table to see what kind of goodies the wizard had in his hovel. I guess I don't necessarily like the idea of using it as a reward, but the times I've played with you and you have used them to add flavor to a scene, it's been really effective. So I, so I do like the idea of using them as loot um, because it gives somebody uh, an interesting home scene where they can gain something kind of cool and flavorful. To me, tomes are always just figure out the bad guy's weakness. But if you make it to something interesting and mythos flavor for the world, it could be pretty neat too. just help kind of world build. So that's an interesting idea that I hadn't really considered. Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually completely changing my opinion the more I think about it, because one of the other things I hate is when people just say, OK, we'll burn the house down. We won't go inside and see what's going on. 
and miss something that could be really cool and scary. So I think, yeah, it's a good idea there to leave a tome or something, something they could learn from as a reward for putting themselves into danger. What I try to do also is if I'm going with this kind of reward mentality of you're spending your home scene instead of on kind of getting a new skill or shoring up your character's sanity, you're spending your home scene on something that might hurt you but gives you knowledge. I do like to sprinkle in just ra- kind of random skill gain that relates to the contents of the tome, because that's canonically supported by the tomes in the Handler's Guide. And it can be it can be anything. You can you can look at some like wing footage from Operation Ranch Hand dumping Agent Orange and get one percent military science air. I mean, there's lots of them that'll give you a cult or. Um, but I also like to give out anthropology and history because a lot of these books are when you learn about a culture or group there. Yeah, or, or like a uh, something about some chocho or. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you can get like art skills from some things. Like if you watch an opera, you get on you get some knowledge of music. Science geology from a, a magazine article about a mysterious geode that made people feel sick. Even a piece of trench art that gives you 1% in artillery. You guys think it'll be some interesting ideas for some kind of ways to make tomes interesting and make them quick and timely. Um, it might be interesting to give someone the uh, the option to believe the tome or not and just kind of mechanically just crib the, the Call of Cthulhu rules. I know when I first opened, I'll paint a word picture for our listeners here, but when I first opened our notes document, I was confronted with a large table with a bunch of different, you know, you know, 1d4, 1d2, 1d6 bonuses and pluses. And immediately I wanted to vomit. Uh, it's like that level of rules. Like I just want those rules to be easy and simple and maybe even one role, if not less. So like when I saw that, I was very concerned we were going to get into this ridiculous rules discussion. So I'm glad we've kind of gotten away from that because I just, there are too many systems already. I want to make this game simple to play and fun to play. Yeah, I don't know if necessarily... Uh, systems are the way to make tomes interesting. I think, a, a be- like I said before, a benefit of the existing systems and mechanics is that they're really simple and pretty quick to use and understand. So, uh, Melon, you mentioned creating your own custom tomes, and I think you've got a document that you've shared around with your own custom tomes on it. Do you have any tips for people who want to make their own? Well, I know that we've talked today about making a tome that's a really kind of big, meaty like takes multiple sessions to 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 really get the full benefit out of it. But I think a lot of times it can be fun to just make something that is a lot shorter or that is might be larger, but there's only one thing in it that's really that interesting. Like uh, I have one in here that's a book of brain teasers that one of the puzzles in it, when you complete the drawing, forms a gravimetric sigil that then immediately destroys the book by tearing through the thin paper and flings you oh it's the grays little uh, yeah the eight anti-gravity basically yeah it's the a is trying to um like you know do intelligence tests on humans or whatever to see if they can solve the riddle or uh like a bigger a bigger book of um like just bullshit kind of pop wizardry that you know someone clearly just made up to cash in on a trend but then one of the spells is just the with the ritual withering <laughs> so uh it's like a lot of garbage spells, and then there's one in a voodoo, with a voodoo doll that actually does just fucking kill somebody if you cast it. And then beyond that, I think that the format is important because I know that I bullied Chief earlier about the definition of a tome and whether it had to be like ancient. But I think part of the fun of Delta Green as a game is that Delta Green has always been about like modern stuff and being kind of like on the cutting edge. So a lot of the tomes that the players could find in the original Delta Green were. V- like VHS tapes or 
recordings of things or like modern hardback or paperback books that were published on subjects. You can make it anything from like a stone slab. I have one that's a bathroom door with just like a bathroom stall door with stuff scribbled on it. And it's wrapped in a tarp where someone like yanked it out of the bathroom of the public bathroom because they didn't want people looking at it. How do you differentiate uh, tomes and artifacts in that sense then? Um, I, I really don't. I mean, I, I have a page that's artifacts, but um, artifacts are another conversation we should have sometime because artifacts, I think, are another way to make science and social, like basically science and then like your soft science skills like anthropology and archaeology to make those more useful. The other use that I was thinking of just now of tomes is something that I've heard a lot of people talk about, but I don't know that I've ever seen it exactly done, is the use of a tome to trigger a flashback to another scenario or portion of a scenario. Oh, for like a one-shot? Yeah. That would be very much, I guess, in the Call of Cthulhu vein, where that's basically the structure of the story. If you're wondering, you know, if you have if you have like a Vietnam era Delta Green scenario or a World War II scenario, and you ha- and you're running a campaign and you want to slot that in somewhere, then yeah, you can absolutely f- uh, f- drop a tome on your players that contains a record of events that you then can play out. And it doesn't have to be a full scenario. Um, you could use something like Baba Yaga's rules for reconstructing the crime scene that he wrote for the, the set piece contest. And it talks about how to do a cool flashback of an action scene based on reconstructing it from pieces that you find at the crime scene. But I think it could work just as well for reading a record of events that you found. So what uh, what are some of you guys' favorite tomes then? Either canon or fanon. Two of mine from the Delta Green uh, Handler's Guide. I like the, the Curtis paper, the one that teaches you consciousness expansion. Uh, that's the one basically where... They, they read it and they learn how to do the math and then they just fucking disappear. They ascend to a higher dimension or something like that. But that one really isn't fair to put in as like a, like a loop tome like we discussed earlier. Because, you know, the character just goes away then and then everybody just sitting there in stunned silence at the table. I think that if it was pro- appropriately contextualized, it could be fun. Like, you know that this is... Like, when you, when you, when you find the, like binder where that it's where it's in the binder is covered with stickers like this uh, if you don't have like principal adex clearance put this down and contact your supervisor another uh another one that i like from the handler's guide is the red cross pocket bible that's a fun one the one that was like the one that's like they they were like oh this is too dangerous let's alter it and if you find like the unaltered one it, it does uh it calls as thought like i said my favorite is probably the narcotic manuscripts just because it's a little bit loosey-goosey, so you can read it multiple times and still get something new out of it each time. Uh, Melon, do you have a favorite? Um, I like the... This is like a really cheap trick, but I still like it. I don't. I wouldn't use it in the form as written. I like the Revelations of Glacky because of the uh, trick with Golinac, where the Revelations of Glacky, they start out as the, the like writings of the Glacky cultists from the Severn Valley or what the fuck ever, but then... One of the supposed volumes is just this kind of random uh, insertion into the into the text of the story of Golinac, the the defiler. And when you read the name, and no, just even knowing his name is dangerous and makes you susceptible to possession by him, which is totally bullshit. And you can't use it in a in its you know direct form because otherwise you kind of just like 
I, one thing I don't want tomes to ever be is just a fuck you to the players for reading them, because other if you punish people for doing something, they stop doing it, and then they become really boring to GM for. Oh, real shocker there. Yeah. I think you could do that once in a campaign and reveal it later and have it be pretty scary. Oh, absolutely. But, yeah. I still like the case for the UFO, because I used to hate how old Delta Green was all this X-Files bullshit, but I've kind of started to like it, because... I guess I will eat any garbage that's put in front of me at the end of the day. And um, I think that the creepy Shubnigrath films from... There was some there was, there was a scenario that I think it was Detwiller or maybe Tynes wrote for Call of Cthulhu that was like one of the... It was like a Scopsy scenario in the 1920s where they were taking over Hollywood. And so they had all these films that um, if you played them with a magic camera, you could go inside them and stuff. But if you played them normally, they were just films that just had job bigger than them and i thought that was a fun scenario thank you for listening to the green box in the show notes for this episode you'll find agent fincher's set piece there was a firefight and melon bread's custom tones you'll also find links to our social media pages and to the Night at the Opera subreddit and Discord. If you've played at Night at the Opera recently, the voting period for the recent scenario contest closes on March 17th. Make sure you get your vote in.